Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the uh, first House Oversight Committee specifically looking at Twitter and uh, the suppression of the Hunter Biden story in advance of the 2020 election. Uh, That occurred yesterday. And uh, we'll get to the Hunter Biden New York Post, you know, the Hunter laptop New York Post story and what Twitter did there and their collaboration with the FBI and all that we know now, thanks to the Twitter files. We'll get to that uh, next hour. But in addition to that, I mean, there were a couple other pieces to the hearing. One of them was the suppression of information that ran counter to COVID orthodoxy as established by the CDC. And Representative Nancy Mays from South Carolina took up that cause in part because of her experience both with COVID as well as the vax. I, along with many Americans, have long-term effects from COVID. Not only was I a long hauler, but I have effects from the vaccine. It wasn't the first shot, but it was the second shot that I now developed asthma that has never gone away since I had the second shot. Um, I have tremors in my left hand, and I have the occasional heart pain that no doctor can explain, and I've had a battery of tests. Hmm. I find it extremely alarming Twitter's unfettered censorship spread into medical fields and affected millions of Americans by suppressing expert opinions from doctors and censoring those who disagree with the CDC. I have great regrets about getting the shot because of the health issues that I now have that I don't think are ever going to go away. And I know that I'm not the only American who has those kinds of concerns. And Mace is uh, in her 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the setup to go after former general counsel for Twitter, Vijaya Gadi who is all over those Twitter files in terms of communications about content regulation over at Twitter uh, prior to Elon Musk's takeover, of course. And uh, Mace specifically asks her, essentially, where does she think she gets off saying that uh, no one should hear the opinions of uh, esteemed medical doctors, epidemiologists that happen to disagree with some of what was coming out of the CDC? Where did you go to medical school? I did not go to medical school. I'm sorry. I did not go to medical school. That's what I thought. Why do you think you or anyone else at Twitter had the medical expertise to censor a doctor's expert opinion? Our policies regarding COVID were designed to protect individuals. We were seeing... You guys censored Harvard-educated doctors, Stanford-educated doctors, doctors that are educated in the best places in the world, and you silenced those voices... It's one of those things that uh, can't be said enough that the American people can't be reminded about enough times that that you had people that were equally credentialed, if not more credentialed than those the media deemed the only 
uh, oracles of truth that were silenced by, well, the media, uh, social media, as well as the D.C. press corps. So, again, when you want to talk about COVID amnesty, then you, you show me your medical degree. You show me uh, uh, you, you explain to me what was done by Twitter and so many other outlets, uh, old media and new media. And uh, explain to me why no one should hear the views of Jay Bhattacharya, Martin, Martin Kaldorf. Uh, Vinaya Prasad. I mean, uh, the, the list, list goes is on, on and on. And, and we've on. had a lot of them on our show. You and mean, it makes yes. it infuriates me that Twitter did this. But I need Twitter. <laughs> the show needs Twitter. I mean, we need to communicate with people and let people know, you know, what what's really going on when it comes to certain situations. Because I would love to quit Twitter. And I tried Parler, True Social, but it's not Twitter. It's not the same. The uh, you know, it's interesting too because the. Twitter also suppressed some content that came from the CDC when right. on the rare occasion when the CDC expressed some hesitation or lack of moral certitude about uh, you know, the uh, get your jab, get your next jab, put your mask on and Shut all up. the other yeah. quote unquote mitigations and all the other uh, you know ad jingles that were essentially coming out as uh, public health. Uh, enlightenment, you're saving lives and all this stuff. And I got to tell you, it it just gets worse and worse for those folks that were in the business of trying to tamp down discussion on topics where there was some disagreement and a lot of imperfect knowledge. Just gets worse and worse for them, as we knew it would. Because because if you eliminate debate, if you say one side, uh, it should be accepted as received wisdom, it cannot be challenged. No questions may be asked, and if you do, you're sidelined. No, you can't. Then, then you should. Then you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised when that period ends, and more and more information is released into the public domain. They look worse and worse, and so here we have another instance of it. This is. Remarkable. Of course, well, this story is not getting the press that it deserves. No, of course not. It's it's being buried because people are recapping, you know, Biden's great job that he did at the State of the Union. But why don't they drag, I mean, besides Twitter, Facebook and Meta to conference and, or to Congress and ask them the same questions about censorship? Well, they can start here. The medical journal Cell Host and Microbe. I want I know my copy. Subscriber. Yeah, I want the copy yeah. put back on my desk, please. Cell Host and, Mike, and Microbe published a perspective led by Tony Fauci last month that showed that the NIAID, you know, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, where Tony Fauci resided for four decades, had good reason to believe the COVID vaccines would fail even before they were authorized. From the piece that was published, quote, it is not surprising that none of the predominantly mucosal respiratory viruses have ever been effectively controlled by vaccines. In other words, they knew, he knew, good reason to believe, his own words, that the vaccines weren't going to stop the spread. Is that what they told us? Oh, hell no. This is, uh, you know. It was all lies. I'm just sick to Todd Zawicki, who is the um, the law professor at George Mason University we had on the show, too, who uh, went to the the mat to uh, not get vaccinated, had sued the sued to school and secured ultimately a vaccine mandate exemption. Um, he 
and 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 he said I didn't need the vax because I had gotten COVID. I had natural immunity. He long emphasized mucosal immunity, which is naturally prompted by infection. That's the key to broad protection. Right. And yet, uh, in fact, there was a study in the Lancet in November of last year that found natural infection far more protective against reinfection than Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines. We know this. That's also been tamped down. Very few people know that. And uh, the the now but 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 the knowledge about the nature of the vaccine and the sort of immunity that's required to actually slow the spread, Fauci knew, and he in, uh, chose to perpetuate misinformation, if you will, because everybody had to fall in line and rinse and repeat not just their hands but their get the facts, slow the spread, get the vax, you get protection, blah 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 blah. They knew. I know, but I want people charged with murder and locked up for this. Three one two six four two five six zero zero is our turnkey depro answer line. By the way, you can also reach us on our text line six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. More on the uh, this this paper, also hard on flu vaccines, which have what they term a quote decidedly suboptimal unquote track record and the best of which would, quote, be inadequate for licensure for most other vaccine-preventable diseases. All of this talk about getting the jabs, the flu, oh, get the flu shot too. Oh, oh yeah, get them both uh, together. Yeah. It is increasingly accepted, this is back to the, the piece of which Tony Fauci is a co-author, it is increasingly accepted that the route of vaccine administration, intramuscular, intranasal, conjunctival, aerosol, is a key determinant of mucosal respiratory response in general, and when feasible, mucosal immunization seems the optimal approach for respiratory viruses. But that's not what the mRNA, what the mRNA vaccines are. That's not what Moderna and Pfizer are. They're systemic. After three years, he just announces this obvious point, uh, wrote, tweeted, tweeted, uh, Todd Zwicky, the George Mason University professor, Fauci is facing the music on intermuscular inject that on intermuscular intermuscular injections do not provide mucosal immunity, wrote a genomics uh, researcher named Kevin McKernan. Where um, Jeffrey Tucker, our friend from the Brownstone Institute, citing this uh, this uh, paper in this journal. Wherein Fauci explains that a vaccine for COVID could never work to stop infection spread or end the pandemic or even pass normal trials. Yeah, that's essentially the upshot. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't even know what to say anymore. What, I, what well, we say? have to hold these people accountable for their lies to the American public. Hold us accountable. The State of the Union address, Mr. 10%, right. talking about how we need to invest more money, meaning government stockpiling more of the forthcoming boosters from oh. Pfizer, just as, and we know, and by the way, there's a petition circulating in the left uh, Internet universe, the left doing this. The... Um, Moderna and Pfizer are, have announced plans to hike the price of the vaccine by over 400%. would increase the price from $26 to $110 to $130 per dose, despite costing, two, costing $2.85 to produce. So this is the left going after the quote-unquote price gouging of big pharma companies, just as their guy, Mr. 10%, was talking about how we need to pour t- more taxpayer dollars into stockpiling more vaccines so that we can give get more people their boosters and we can just continue 
to perpetuate this because this is an instance where big pharma is good as opposed to the other instances where big pharma is bad, like the price they charged for insulin before they came in and, and put a ceiling on it. I, I just, but, but the, the, the fraud that Fauci was a part of, knowing things that he was saying were untrue and getting half the nation to repeat those untrue things to their detriment and to our collective detriment. Uh, it's stunning. Stunning. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. And, uh, you know, Amy, as I've been mentioning this month, February is American Heart Month. And so a good time to do a uh, stop, look, and listen with our friend Ira Antelis, the creator of 120 Life, my blood pressure shaman, Ira Antelis, joins us now. <laughs> Ira, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, it's great to be with both of you. How are you? Good. So uh, American Heart Month and uh, yep. the, the connection to, uh, to your uh, blood pressure drink, 120 Life. What are some things people should do to do the same stop, stop, look, and listen, the same checkup on their heart health? First, heart disease, as uh, we know, is the leading cause of death. And if you have in the United States, and if you have high blood pressure, that increases the odds of heart disease. So we must figure out a way to get our blood pressure down because if you can reduce your blood pressure even a little, it will prevent. It might prevent other things like strokes or heart disease. So the first thing I say is know your numbers. So if you don't know if you have it, it's a problem. So, you know, I've had my blood pressure monitor, which I spent maybe $40 on for seven years already, and it's still good. So it might be a good investment, or you can go to a pharmacy or many doctors just to see if you have high blood pressure. And then the second thing, I sort of coined a little phrase, I call it the four S's, uh, salt, sugar, sleep, and stress. So if we can deal with the four S's, we might be able to help our, our overall health. So we have to cut our salt. And as I've said, let's say you have salted nuts every day. Just cutting that out and maybe having nuts without salt will help to lower your blood pressure. Let's say you put sugar in your tea or coffee and maybe you know sugar uh, can also lead to high blood pressure. See, maybe we can cut that out. Um, we're not getting as a society enough sleep. You need to get seven to eight hours. 
Otherwise, it's not good for your heart health. And lastly is stress, which we all face. We have to figure out a way to, to minimize that. So the four S's, I think, is one good way to help that. The other thing I want to mention, and I've studied this a little bit, is doctors recommend pomegranate juice and beet juice for heart health. And those are the first two ingredients I put in 120 Life. Uh, when I created it. Now, I understand you wrote an ebook on high blood pressure, and could you tell us more about it? Yeah, you know, it's um, my partner uh, is a woman named Susan Schachter. She has a master's in nutrition, and we just did like a simple little book about, um, again, some of the things I just talked about. What can you eat? Supplements that you might be able to take, uh, for instance, olive leaf extract or other things, grapeseed extract, you know, just overall health things. It's like 15 to 20 pages really, really easy to read, but high blood pressure is not difficult to figure out. It's just that nobody ever really talks about it. So we try to just make it really simple. It's like an FAQ for blood pressure yes, and heart health. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Going back just a second um, to, to refresh our audience on the innovation that uh, is 120 Life. You mentioned the hibiscus and pomegranate, and doctors recommend that. And and what you did is, is essentially just take the juices that doctors say aid in reducing blood pressure and, and thus improving heart health and combine them into a singular drink, right? Exactly. So I was the living example of what not to do and my blood pressure was really high. Knowing nothing about blood pressure, uh, they basically told me to figure it out on my own. I kept reading about like many uh, of your listeners, and I talk to them, um, that you look on the computer and you say, okay, what should I eat? What should I drink? And six or seven things with studies, so I wasn't making it up, just kept popping up. If you drink hibiscus tea, studies show it will lower your blood pressure. If you drink pomegranate juice, studies will show it will lower your blood pressure. So one day I'm like, wow, if all of these six things lower your blood pressure together, they could probably lower even more. And that was the idea behind 120 Life. And, and so so has, has that been demonstrated with clients, uh, stories that you've heard, research that's been done? Oh, yeah. that, that, that it, yeah, I, It's a force multiplier. Oh, absolutely. You know, people, now again, this is why we recommend you try for two weeks. And if you're unhappy, we guarantee a refund. But people call me after three, four days, uh, many, and say, wow, my blood pressure dropped. Some will call and say, well, it took me a month. And if it doesn't help you, We'll just give you your money back. It's like a no-lose proposition. So, Ira, do you have any customers that were on blood pressure medicine that are not on it anymore because of 120 Life? Yeah. So uh, what we say is do not stop your medication. So, But know what your blood pressure is. So let's say your blood pressure with medication is 140 over 90, and then you start drinking 120 Life, and it goes to 128 over 80. Hmm. Then you can go to your doctor and say, wow, I've been taking this drink, and my blood pressure dropped. And they might say, well and this has happened before, we'll cut your medication in half or we'll even allow you to try going off of it. But that's the doctor's decision. I know the uh, the recommended daily allowance is just drink the one eight ounce bottle each day. But the, is there anything uh, that says you can't have a couple of bottles a day? I mean, it's it's like it's a pretty tasty drink. And so does that does that uh, negatively impact or does it have an, a particular impact? I get emails on this all the time. Um, the issue is that we put the, as we get older, especially the most maybe two of the most important things we could do is have enough magnesium and really increase your potassium. So in our drink, we give you the daily recommended amount of magnesium, but too much magnesium is not good. So let's say you want to drink two or three bottles of 120 Life. That's too much magnesium because that's triple the amount of the recommended daily amount. So that's the issue. 
okay. uh, is really the magnesium. But I, you know, I tell people if you want to drink a bottle and a half, or you know, you can then on your own maybe drink 120, and then maybe you'll make hibiscus tea uh, for for yourself during the day, things like that. Refresh our audience's recollection. Uh, they hear from me uh, just about every day, so I think they know, but can't remind them too much how folks can take uh, a, a trial with uh, 120 Life, as you were describing sure. earlier. You go to 120life.com, and if you also we give you a free ebook if you go to the site, and we have a, a, new, a daily newsletter, a weekly newsletter, and you can sign up. And again, after two weeks, if you're unhappy for any reason, you just email us, and I'm actually the one that does all the customer service, so I call you back or I'll email you back. And um, hopefully, you know, we don't get many calls for refunds, but if, if we do, we just take care of it. We want people to get healthy. And if for some reason it's not helping you, we're, we're happy to refund your money. And the two weeks usually is a normal uh, time frame to determine whether or not you're seeing the, the results if you're, you're religious about uh, drinking a bottle a day. Look, in, in an ideal world, I probably would give it a, a little bit longer because, like I was talking about the studies, let's say, on pomegranate juice and hibiscus tea, they're all about six weeks. But since we combine everything, we say two weeks, and this should give you a sense if it's going to help your blood pressure. Again, we know, again, that um, American Heart Month, that it is really, really good for your heart. All right. 120life.com is how you can uh, try to have a trial run with, uh, with 120life, 120life.com. And don't forget to use the promo code DAN, my name, for 10% off your two-week trial pack. Ira Antelis, founder of 120life, 120life.com. Ira, thanks as always. Appreciate it. All right, nice to talk to you both. Have a wonderful day. You too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You've made the switch. And it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. New poll out in the mayor's race, city of Chicago. Mason Dixon did it, plus or minus 4%. Chewy Garcia, 20%. Paul Vallis, 18%. Lori Lightfoot, 17%. Willie Wilson, 12%. Brandon Johnson, 11%. The rest in single digits. 2018-17-12, Garcia, Vallis, Lightfoot, Wilson. Hmm. Interesting challenge that Lightfoot has. Uh, I don't think she can win. And why not? Her fave on faves and the right track, wrong track numbers are so bad, and they're, they run sort of parallel, whereas all the other candidates are marginally have favorable ratings. And they're obviously less well-known. That will change, particularly with whoever makes the runoff. 
She's twenty two fifty four upside down, twenty two fave, fifty four unfave. And the right track wrong track question. The city of Chicago on the right track or wrong track. Twenty three say it's on the right track. I'd like to meet that twenty three percent. Please call in. Uh, <laughs> We're here se- for counseling. Seventy one percent say wrong track. So that's a pretty those are pretty bad numbers. It's hard to see a path and that's sort of reflected in the polling that Mason Dixon did in terms of potential uh, runoff matchups, mm-hmm. where if it was Lightfoot versus Chewy, she's down 24. If it was Lightfoot versus Vallis, she's down 13. Okay. Problem is, I don't. So I don't see how she can win. I really don't. I, I mean, you know, there's there's always a path, and uh, however narrow, and the dynamics will change if she had a runoff with Vallis in particular. There's. I don't see any way she beats Chewy, but uh, but but the di- the dynamics, political dynamics between her and Vallis would be interesting, more challenging, uh, m- provide more opportunity for her. How, please explain to me because you're so smart. How, how is Chewy in the lead right now? Chewy P- Garcia, what has he accomplished? He was public, even a- se- oh, sorry. P- public sector unions and the la- Latino vote. I mean, what what, he, what does he accomplish? He, what has he accomplished? What what has he accomplished? What what is that? What is that question? We're talking about the Chicago's mayor's Chicago mayor's race. We're talking about an Illinois political race. What, what is what he been he in accom- charge? Has he been in charge of a business? What what has he done as a congressman? As a, wasn't he a state rep and all the? I mean, what is he? He's like, hey, he reminds that, me of. I don't know. You, well, you're the only one asking that question. Nobody else cares what they've accomplished. Oh, my God. oh I mean, and well, he'll he has con- a job he, right now. He doesn't need this job. He's. He was at the State of the Union the other day, missed another debate. So just keep your congressional seat. Yeah, well, that's not what he's chosen chosen to do. Um, he uh, touted in that WBEZ forum yesterday. You know, the, he's brought home the bacon. He's the infrastructure guy. Oh, really? We'll get to we'll get to some okay. of the back and forth in that forum because it was Please. interesting and instructive. Problem is, I'm I'm not seeing like a clear path for Vallis because if Lightfoot can't make it. Then and Chewy is going to be there. Then if it's Chewy and Vallis, then how does Vallis be Chewy? I think he can uh, get the black vote. Can he? Yeah, I do. Uh huh. And I know well, a lot of teachers that you know, despite the you know the union backing Brandon Johnson, they are backing Paul Vallis. Well, um, and this and by the way, this you know twenty eighteen seventeen. Uh, 12, those four candidates are more or less within the statistical margin of error. So this is, and if it's a low turnout election and Latinos don't show up and the numbers that Chewy needs them, you know, he's getting a majority of the Latino vote, no surprise. Um, Then, you know, you're talking about a couple of points. Turnout is going to matter. The quality of the ground game for these respective campaigns will matter. Black voters, 26% supporting Willie Wilson, 25% supporting Lightfoot, 16% uh, Brandon Johnson. Vallis's, I mean, it's just racial racial lines. What do you, what do you expect? Vallis is getting 38% of the honkies. I mean, that's what this is, which is why you get this 2018, 17, 12, 11 sort of dealio. Um, did you see this hit piece the Tribune did on Vallis? They brought up an issue that with his son, his son Gus is a San Antonio police officer, and back in 2022, um, there was a shooting a fatal shooting of a man who was violating her parole and wanted for a felony weapons charge who fled police. It was a justified shooting, but they're bringing it up because the guy that they shot was black. Gus Val is still on the job. And so are the other two police officers again. But I mean, that is, that is just sick that they're, here's your democratic party. Paul. that's your opposition research. I think that was a really low blow. 
Uh, oh wait, no, I, no, no, no. I understand from Paul Vallis that he knows all the people in the Chicago press corps, and he 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 knows how to deal with them. He he he's got relationships with them. It's going to be fine, right? I mean, and he he did release a statement. This matter was the subject of a completed investigation. Gus Vallis was found not to have engaged in any violation of policy or procedure and has since returned to full duty. You know, for somebody, here's the thing about, well, there's many things, but here's one thing about Paul Vallis that's just it's a bit surprising for as smart as he is and as long as he's been around. He doesn't seem to have a good handle on Chicago politics, including Chicago media. He doesn't seem to understand who he is in this milieu, in this time, and how he can expect to be treated. He seems very caught off guard. I don't know why. Well, partly because he doesn't listen to people. At least not people not named Joe Trippy. apparently. Hear about the big stories of the day. Then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, we were talking about uh, this survey that was out yesterday, published yesterday from Mason Dixon Polling, breaking down the mayor's race with uh, basically Chewy, Vallis, and Lightfoot in a statistical dead heat, and Willie Wilson in fourth, technically in a statistical dead heat, although he's a few points back. 2018, 17, 12 is the rundown as we stand here about uh, 19 days before the uh, primary election and uh, the head-to-head matchups and potential runoff were interesting although I would have liked to see more of the permutations I would like to see the Garcia versus Vallis matchup that was not included in what the Sun Times excuse me the NPR Times published Um, but basically uh, Lightfoot is in a bad spot her charm offensive clearly isn't moving the needle based on her approval numbers, both fave-unfave for approval numbers as mayor and the fact that 7 in 10 Chicagoans think Chicago's on the wrong track. And i got to say, something else that's a real indicator about Lightfoot's general failure as a politician, in addition to on the substance as mayor, is the fact that there are six other black candidates in this race. And, you know, the black candidates in this race uh, are not monolithic in terms of where they come from politically or ideologically. Yeah, Cam Buckner and Brandon Johnson are sort of in the same place, but Will, Willie Wilson clear, clearly is not. Roderick Sawyer is somewhere between a Willie Wilson and, say, a Cam Buckner. So it, it's just interesting because it, it signals her inability to build alliances right? almost anywhere. Well, Reverend Trotter came out and um, supported Willie Wilson. this, But the first time around, he was all Lori Lightfoot. So people are, you know, dividing and leaving her. And there's no appetite for her. There's no, you drive around the city, you'll see Vallis signs, Willie Wilson signs. I finally, for the first time ever, saw one Lori Lightfoot sign on a neighbor's yard. And that was it. I mean, there, there, there's like no appetite. There's no, no excitement for her. That doesn't mean she can't get to the runoff. That's true. Um, but if she does... Um... It would seem to that would seem to eliminate Paul Vallis to me 
if she's in, it's probably going to be at the expense of Vallis, not Chewy. And so either way, you're going to have a Chewy mayor. I just, I mean, I think this is where the trending, this is where this, the race is trending. And I, I have to tell you, at least Lightfoot uh, has taken some risks a little bit outside her comfort zone. I think she can't get out of her own way. This is just who she is. And she's really distasteful. She is suffering much more so because of her personality right. than she is because of her policy, because Chewy Garcia has the same policies or worse, but he's not wearing the jacket for them the way that she is. And I got to tell you something, particularly with respect to the black vote. Um, a lot of black voters look at the crime issue very different than, you know, some suburban honky like me. And this bears out in the polling. So I'm not just this is not just my women's intuition. This bears out in polling and it's conversations I've had with a lot of uh, uh People in Chicago from the black community who have a handle on this. But again, the numbers bear it out, too. You know, they look at the crime issue, even if it's in their neighborhoods, which it predominantly is. And they say, yeah, it's terrible. But it's not Lori Lightfoot's fault, not exclusively. This predated her. Mm -hmm. This has always been part of Chicago. And you can't lay all the blame on Lori Lightfoot and she's trying to do some things. And I like this thing or I like that thing. So they give more latitude, generally speaking, than say I would when it comes to uh, the endemic violent crime in Chicago. So it just speaks to that she had opportunity and she just over the last four years has dutifully and methodically frittered it away. She's a disaster. She's a rolling dumpster fire. Well, here's the exchange yesterday at this WBEZ mayoral candidate forum at UIC. Yeah, and I hear well, Chewy bothered to show up. That was nice. He was there. One of the exchanges between Vallis and Lightfoot on crime. And I, the one thing I will give a BZ credit for here is at least this wasn't like your 15-second, 5-second you know, silliness where you don't have a discussion. They gave the candidates time to, you know— elaborate but not drone on and so uh valis on crime and then lightfoot's response uh, the clearance rates are i mean even the clearance rates on murders they talk about record clearance rates but they point out that only half of those cases cleared is actually running uh, resulting in an arrest so while they're taking that uh incident off the book only half the times are they actually making an arrest in those murders. But you're correct when you talk about 5% clearance rates on shootings. You've got to, and I agree with, uh, I agree with uh, uh, Alderman King, you've got to uh, uh, bring retired police officers back, and you've got to swell the detective ranks with analysts who can work these cases, because we have one-sixth the number of detectives New York has, and on a per capita basis, it's one-third. They only have about 200 all, uh, detectives, the Sun Times again reported, uh, actually focusing on murders in Chicago. Wow. You also need to create a witness protection program. Two years, there were 58 mass shootings in Chicago. Led the nation in mass shootings. Through August of that year, they had made one arrest. Last year, there were 47 mass shootings. I, I, I think they've made a handful of arrests. People are afraid to come forward. That is why they cannot clear cases. And then finally, on the, you, know, you can collect all the guns you want, but if you're not making arrests, you're not accomplishing anything. The police will tell you that the lack of a forensic lag, the lack of the city having its own 
uh, uh, you know, uh, forensic lab, the inability to trace the guns, to track the guns, the inability to get the DNA information back impedes their ability to close these cases. So, you know, you confiscate the guns and they go out and get more guns. I mean, that is a fact. Talk to any police officer when you walk out the door and they will tell you exactly that. And on the uh, the matter of the number of detectives, uh, the chief of detectives, Brendan Dinahan, is uh, leaving to go to Google. Yeah, what, they, we don't know what position he's going to take there at Google, but he was, he is this the backbone that holds that department together. He is the go-to. He is smart. He knows he's been on the streets. He's been a detective. I mean, I just, it's a big loss to have him go. So there you heard Paul Vallis's dissertation. Yeah. And now comes Lori Lightfoot in response because, of course, when she's talking, when he's talking about clearance rates and the focus on the proverbial guns from Indiana that are the root of the problem, uh, he's critical of Lori Lightfoot. So Triple Threat responded. Mr. Vallis, I I know you've been gone from the city of Chicago for a long time, but almost everything that you just said is categorically untrue, (laughs) and probably because you're getting your public safety advice from John Cantazara, who you hosted a fundraiser for just two days ago. Let me me actually bring you up to speed on what the facts are. The fact of the matter is our clearance rate is about 50%. That's increased markedly over my time in office from when it was in the teens. Um, The fact of the matter is we do have more police. We hired 956 police last year. We promoted um, to the detective ranks, ranks over 300 officers in the last two years. So I can't sit here and listen to you denigrate our hardworking men and women of the police department. And when they, make, they take those guns off the street, they are making arrests. This is dangerous, violent work that requires them to put themselves at risk every single day. Easy for you to say from your perspective, but I deal with the police every single day, and I know what they're, do, they're doing now. Okay, again, we'll I know you moving. don't know that. But these are all the things that go into help our young people stop that pipeline to the streets and make our community safer. You, you should mayor. know that if you want to be the mayor of Chicago. Oh, Paul oh boy. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. How would you expect or desire Paul Vallis to respond to what you just heard from Lightfoot? the same problem they've been repeating over and over at every press conference. And if she's not saying it, Superintendent Brown's saying it. They're having fun with numbers, Dan. And so that's what you want Paul Vallis to say in response? No, I, so I'm not, an, I'm not a police officer or a politician because I don't know. How do you think he should respond? Well, one of the things, you know, you're talking about retired, bringing retired cops back. Um, did they stop listening to the show? Uh, how about the cop we had on? Oh, I know. Last week, how about the 106 cops that are active duty in suburban departments that want to come back? And there apparently, according to him, is been is a rehire agreement that's been sitting on Lightfoot's desk for two months. And Paul Vallis, and when Paul Vallis is mayor, he will get that done. He will bring those 106 police officers back as soon as possible. Says who? You? Says Paul Vallis. When did he say that? Well, I was talking to him. I talked to him. Well, he said that <laughs> okay. he will, because he knows about the situation and he'll do something about it. Whereas Mayor Lightfoot, who doesn't like police, who wants to defund police, uh-huh. is letting it sit there. So let me ask you something. Then why wouldn't he take the opportunity in a mayoral forum to say, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, can you explain to us why there's this agreement sitting, been sitting at your desk for two months to bring 106 active duty police who used to be CPD or in suburban departments who want to come back to can and they want and can you explain why that you haven't signed that and brought them back? Okay. Well. 
I take it he didn't do that at the he, forum. He's, 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 not, he's not supposed to – I mean, he's fine that he talks to you about it, but this is supposed to be a secret. He's running for mayor. That's a public office, and so if you want to publicly challenge, particularly the incumbent, and also publicly defend yourself by going on offense for a change, then that seems to be something obvious you could do to put triple threat back on her heels and to maybe get some interest in this godforsaken race. But that's not what Paul Vallis did. Here's what Paul Vallis said in response. After getting that dressing down by triple threat, Mm -hmm. this is his response. Yeah, you know, I'm going to decline to respond other than to say that coming from a family of six veterans and four police officers, when police officers have retirement luncheons, I attend those luncheons since I've attended those luncheons, I think, for the last 10 years. So at the end of the day, you know, I I just submit my case. The data that I've articulated comes directly from the inspector general's reports and comes directly from the police department itself. So all the data I put out is factual. Hey, uh, Paul, put your pee hat on along with your pocket protector. What, what oh, you, oh, you went to luncheons. No, he said he got the data from the inspector <laughs> yeah, general. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, I heard him. I heard what he said. Okay. He, put your pocket protector on. The data is the data. And put your pee hat on. I just He just got dressed down by the mayor who called him a liar who doesn't know anything about the city. I'm not going to respond to that because I'm a pee hat because my consultant told me, don't go on offense because you don't want to look like you're attacking a black woman. I guarantee you. Bet you dollars to donuts. That's what the Joe Trippies of the world are saying to him, whoever else is around him are saying to him. And so be as dry and as much of a eunuch as you can be. I'm not going to respond to that. Why wouldn't you respond to that? She accused you of saying things that are untrue. Oh, the data is from the Inspector General's report. Yes, and? And? And what? I go to luncheons. Boy, there's a guy I want to charge up the hill with. Ron on South Side, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. <laughs> Dan. Uh, hey, Amy, the the more that he, uh, Paul Vallis talks, uh, the worse he gets exposed for what he is, okay? What what is so, that? Well, what is he? What he is? What's what? He has he he has he has no real solutions, and 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 I, things will not change. Okay, but let me get to something even more specific. This whole idea of bringing back what do you say? A hundred, hundred and sixty retired police? No, there's 160. a hundred and sixty. We had one on our show. No, they okay. left and okay. they went to okay. suburban okay. departments yeah. and they yeah, realized but, they want to go yes. back home. Okay. Okay. Yes, but, okay. In, okay. The but forum, in the forum, Vallis talked about bringing retired cops back to the force, which he has said previously. Yes, he right. said that. And he said it on y'all's station. Here's my thing. Because I talked to you know, retired police. That, that is temporary. During the COVID period, they brought back retired nurses. That was what? It was temporary. See, people retire for a reason. Like me, I'm retired. I'm not doing anything. But that's nonsense. I just want to say that one particular idea and the other ideas I won't spend any more time talking about. But I wish he would quit saying that because that is not a solution. The the guy just is is an empty suit. He has nothing to offer. You all have a good day. Thanks for the call. I don't think think Vallis is an empty suit. No, he's not. But... I, I, I keep saying it, and now the polling is backing me up, at, at least the polling of present that we're talking about. He, he, he's acting like he can run a four-corner stall offense and run the clock out. He's acting like he's sitting on a 10-point lead.
and he's not. That exchange between him and Lightfoot is embarrassing for him. Greg Jefferson Park. Uh, good morning, guys. Yeah, I think the guy's, for the most part, a hack. But in any case, the, what he should have said was, I'm going to put 50, 60, whatever people on the force on the first day of my uh, administration by getting rid of uh, not having 81 people on my personal security force, having 20 people, whatever. That would have been a perfect one. He should have said, no, those numbers are correct. And here's how I'm going to put guys on the first day. That would have been an excellent retort to what Lightfoot says. But you know what? Yeah, that he, would have been. He ain't got it, man. He ain't that, got it. That would have been. Thanks for the call. G- give me something concrete as, as opposed to, you know, your 14-point plan. And something else, too. I, 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 I don't understand why n- none of the candidates, particularly Vallis, and maybe Willie Wilson, since he wants to hunt criminals down like rabbits, um, what about this? Talk about police, and this is what. We, but we also need partnership with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, and Kim Fox's office is a problem. Yeah, big problem. And, yes. and draw her into this. That seems to me like it would be politically smart. It's also extremely relevant. This story: prosecutors declining to charge a man identified as the gunman who burst into a South Shore apartment last month, opened fire during an apparent robbery attempt killing a mother and her trans daughter, all this talk about trans violence, you know, violence against trans, and wounding three others, including two other trans women. And all you're getting from the, they, they identify the guy, they think they got the guy, he's uh, got outstanding cases against him that are of a similar sort, at least with respect to uh, burglary, and they're declining to move forward with charges without any explanation. This is, to me, I might raise the heat on this a little bit and say, you can't do that without explaining, without jeopardizing the case, jeopardizing the investigation, without explaining it to the public. How is it? The police police say they got their man. Right? Right. So explain to us why this individual is not in custody and is not being charged. You only know, in Chicago. Well, I shouldn't say only in Chicago. But this is the point. It's a way to make things concrete. You can recite all the clearance rate stats you want, That's, but, but you need more illustrations. Paul is good with the policy. He's not good at articulating the predicate to policy, which is first principles, and he's not good at the passion part, which is illustrating the policy. And it's not always just a litany of data points. It has to be a story that gives human form to the policy, to the problem, to the challenge. I go to luncheons. Uh, Corey Woodlawn, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Paul Dallas reminds me of Gary Johnson. He's got all the politics. He just lacks the vigor. And Chicago, the Democrats in this city have never cared about property or people. So they're not going to fix any of these problems when it comes down to policing. Thank you. Thanks, Corey. John Lincolnwood. Oh, good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, When I heard that uh, Paul Vallis uh, rebuttal, that was one of the worst things I've ever heard. I mean... I, I like the guy. He's on your show a few times. I, you know, he's a Democrat, but I, I like a lot of things he says. But my God, couldn't he have said 
Uh, yeah, you hired 900 and whatever, but how many Chicago police actually left Chicago? Thousands. Uh, and, that, and, and how many actually want to come back and you are not hiring? That's a fact. I mean, I'm not even a politician, and I know that stuff. I mean, come on. Is he... He is acting like the Mitt Romney, McCain, don't attack, don't attack. I'm like, it's just pathetic. My God, go Willie Wilson. Take care, guys. Thanks, John. Eric, Rolling Meadows. Hey, good morning. I think, obviously, nobody runs on merit anymore in their accomplishments in Chicago, so he's got to hit back. He's got to just let her know that no one likes her, that the police don't like her. Go emotional the way that she does, you know? Thanks well, that'd be Eric. juvenile if he said, yeah, nobody likes you. Not quite in those I, words, okay. but yeah, right. But but on the on the merits and go right back at her. The uh, citizens don't like her because she doesn't have our back. So so why is Paul Vallis afraid to spar? Because probably he doesn't want to lose the black vote if he's attacking a black female, just like you said. And that is a that is... completely faulty analysis, and it's a terrible approach. It well, does not. He, it does not present well, as you just heard. And he should fight back. I mean, right now, <clears throat> Channel Nine is showing the footage of his son's shooting while on duty. And they're so, not going to stop the black. I mean, they want to oh, make no, sure he doesn't get no, any no, black votes. No, no, no. Don't worry, because Paul Vallis knows the Chicago media is going to be fine. He knows how to handle them. It was doing a, a justified shooting. Leave him alone. Dean doing a great job. Here was the Vallis uh, Chewy exchange on okay. this high school in Little Village that. Uh, which one? Uh, that this high school and little village that got built and and who was responsible for it and who wasn't just take a listen here's Beautiful another example school. in part because uh, during my tenure at the Chicago Public Schools we boosted enrollment by 40,000 and there were 125,000 more children in the school system then than when <coughs> I departed and let me point out that I actually funded the little village high school what the what the account what the what the le- uh, what well, the legend okay. Arnie Duncan funded the Little Village High School, and that's why he was invited to the groundbreaking and the ribbon cutting. Is this my time? Thank you, Congressman. Thank you very much. Besides building 30 schools and 48 additions, we funded the Little Village High School. The problem with the what 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 the what the congressman doesn't tell you is he got into a fight with the Daly administration over the location of the school, so that delayed the opening of the schools. Preceding that. Chewy Garcia said that Paul Vallis stole our money for the Little Village High School and sent it somewhere else. And that's the level of response you get from Vallis to the whole thing. I'm telling you. You can you can rationalize it. You can make excuses for him all day long. It is a dead bang losing approach. He will get rolled in the in a runoff if he makes it. And that's a big if against Chewy Garcia, for sure. So, hey, you want to c- congratulate yourself if you're able to squeak by Lightfoot and get to a runoff so you can get throttled in, in a, a month later? If that's what the purpose of his campaign was, he's doing a great job, Brownie. Uh, Frank in St. Charles here in Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, good morning. A couple of months ago on one of the local channels, they had a, a big panel, like 10 people on uh, crime in Chicago and all that, and they went from person to person, all their comments. I didn't hear one person there, and Brown was there too, the superintendent. I didn't hear one person call for strict enforcement, mandatory penalties, punishment. No, it was, oh, let's see how we can prevent this, and this is people of color. Money. Blah, 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 blah. Investment. 
Investment, 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 investment. More programs, more this, yeah. more that, more money, more money here, more money there, more money everywhere. That's right. Thanks for the call, Frank. That's what it is. That's all they offer. I mean, with the exception of Alice and Wilson, who wants to they want school like choice. Rabbits. But they also, too, they want school choice, and we can't forget about that. Who wants school choice? The only two candidates that want school choice are Willie Wilson well, and I, Paul Dallas. I know. We're talking about everybody else. But you're going to get one of the everybody else because of the failure of the two candidates who are school choice supporters to run effective campaigns to present. They got 19 days. Hear about the big stories of the day. Then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, that House oversight hearing yesterday with uh, former Twitter employees. In the line of fire. Uh, Not awesome for everybody. Some people were upset about it. But what the uh, Dems tried to do with their time was, of course, focused on what uh, Twitter wasn't doing and what it needs to do more, particularly in the area in the uh, era of Elon at Twitter, which is to um, censor more speech and disable more accounts and reduce the number of voices that are allowed on the platform by greater numbers. AOC, uh, you know, the front girl for the Socialist Spice Girls. Oh, everybody knows her. But she was big, 300 pounds. Nobody would care what she says. But okay. Big waste of time. Oh, big this, waste oh of time. I'm sorry, Tootsie. We could be talking about so many more things that are so much more important. Here, when the New York Post first reported in October 2020 that it had obtained contents of a laptop computer allegedly owned by Joe Biden's son Hunter, there was an immediate roadblock faced by other news outlets that hoped to corroborate reporting, as many did. The newspaper wasn't sharing what it obtained. New York Post had this alleged information and was trying to publish it without any corroboration, without any backup information, They were trying to publish it to Twitter. Twitter did not let them, and now they were upset. I believe that political operatives who sought to inject explosive disinformation with the Washington Post couldn't get away with it. Sounds nervous. And now they're livid, and they want the ability to do it again. They want the ability to inject this again. So they've dragged a social media platform here in Congress. They're weaponizing the use of this committee so that they can do it again. A whole hearing... About a 24-hour hiccup in a right-wing political operation. That is why we are here right now. And it's just an abuse of public resources, an abuse of public time. We could be talking about health care. We could be talking about bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. We could be talking about abortion rights, civil rights, voting rights. But instead, we're talking about Hunter Biden's half-fake laptop story. (gasps) I mean, this is an embarrassment. Well, uh, the embarrassment is you, Tootsie. His half-fake, uh, 24-hour hiccup, right-wing operation. Um, okay, I mean, none of those um, things are true, but she's right. We could be talking about more important things. There are important things. There are things like what, what affects people in their home. When you come upon something in your very own sink and you have no idea what to do with it or to it, and it frightens you, you don't feel safe. Okay, everyone, I need your help. Because I just moved into this apartment a few months ago and I flipped this switch 
made that noise oh, and it please. scared the daylights out of me. I am told this is a garbage disposal. I've never seen a garbage disposal. I never had one in any place I've ever lived. It is terrifying. I don't know what to use it for or what its purpose is. Like food scraps, like is this environmentally sound? I don't know. Boo! No, I'm just kidding. I think there's a piece of glass down there. Yeah. Um, just like you and me. We could be talking about things. I mean, you know, look, gas stoves, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, dangers in the home, garbage disposals. Well, does she know that Hunter mm -hmm. Biden has admitted that Hunt, that was Hunter Biden's laptop? Mm -hmm. Not some half-baked story about his laptop that he... She doesn't want to talk about that. She wants to talk about lives of TikTok, and that's what she talked about uh, when it came to her time to turn her attention away from uh, her indign indignation at having to participate in this. Uh, didn't go to garbage disposals, went to lives of TikTok. Lives of TikTok needs to be taken down. And uh, make sure you listen to uh, Yoel Roth's response when they get into the Q&A. Yoel Roth, a former head of trust and safety you know the guy who thinks uh, kids should be on grinder here that goes uh additionally miss navaroli are you familiar with the account libs of tiktok i have heard of it from the news yes um mr roth are you familiar with this account yes ma'am i am are you aware from that from august 11th to august 16th that account posted false information about Boston Children's Hospital, claiming that they were providing hysterectomies to children. Because they are? Yes, I am aware of that and other claims from the account. And are you aware that this lie was then circulated by other prominent far-right influencers? Yes. And are you aware that all these claims, uh, which I have reiterated, were false, culminated in a real-life harassment and ultimately a bomb threat to the Boston Children's Hospital. Yes, I am aware. And this account is still on that platform today, isn't it? Regrettably, yes, it is. Ooh. Despite oh, inspiring a, a bomb threat due to the right-wing incitement of violence against trans Americans in this country, because they cannot let go of this obsession with fixating violence and inciting violence against trans and LGBT people, in addition to immigrants, in addition to women of color, this is a party that cannot pick on anyone their own size. 312-642-5600, turnkey depro answer line, <clears throat> 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Well, she also doesn't have the facts exactly right on the Boston Children's Hospital no. story, much like she doesn't on the... Hunter laptop story. Uh, here is uh, examples of the videos posted by I, Boston Children's yeah. Hospital by the medical professionals there talking about those very topics that were just mentioned. Gender-affirming hysterectomy is very similar to most hysterectomies that occur. A hysterectomy itself is the removal of the uterus, the cervix, which is the opening of the uterus, and the fallopian tubes, which are attached to the sides of the uterus. 
Some gender-affirming hysterectomies will also include the removal of the ovaries, but that's technically a separate procedure called a bilateral oophorectomy. And not every gender-affirming hysterectomy includes that, and people who are getting gender-affirming hysterectomies do not have to have their ovaries removed. Uh, another yeah, um, doctor from the same Boston Children's Hospital talking trans, she knows right away. A child will often know that they are transgender from the moment oh, yeah. that they have any sure. ability to express themselves, and parents will often tell us this. We have parents who tell us that their kids, they knew from the minute they were born practically, and actions like refusing to get a haircut or standing to urinate, trying to stand to urinate, refusing to stand to urinate, trying on siblings' clothing, uh, playing with the, quote, opposite gender toys, things like that. There is more and more a group of adolescents that we are seeing that really are coming to the realization that they might be trans or gender diverse a little bit later on in their life. So what we're seeing from them is that they always sort of knew something was maybe off and didn't have the understanding to know that they might be trans or have a different gender identity than the one they had been assigned. So that is a, a growing population that, they are, that we are seeing and that's being recognized as being trans and able to be treated. Why didn't one of the congressional members up there play that video for her? And yeah, say, I did, uh, no, you're wrong. Obviously about Hunter Biden's laptop, but about this too. Right. I mean, you know, it's it, it would be nice to divide labor and have somebody focus on the uh, agitprop that you know is going to come from the AOCs of the world, so you can respond in kind and and on the merits. And uh, Libs of TikTok has all the research, and it's not just her over at Libs of TikTok. Um, there's other postings that document 65 double mastectomies on minors between the years 2017 and 2020. Uh, the archival information that Libs of TikTok got before, of course, the website was scrubbed and or updated. Uh, they, Boston Children's, uh, uh, after the after the virals after the videos went viral, I should say, Boston Children's Hospital updated the website. They quietly changed the age of requirement for a vaginoplasty from 17 to 18 and added, we only perform gender-affirming hysterectomies on patients who are 18 and older. So that was added after the videos went viral. Right, after they got and, busted. And you don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but this is an issue that is being debated in state houses around the country and at the school board level, all associated policies, and certainly with parents and medical professionals. And for AOC to suggest that lives of TikTok is the problem in this discussion, um, well, that needs to be challenged. Well, what I learned yesterday is that there seems to be a revolving door between the FBI and Twitter employees. Did you know that, that a lot of people are, are working, that will leave the FBI and go straight to Twitter? Mr. Chairman, uh, just, where is that from, that timeline? Timeline in my hand, boss. I'll, I'll get it to you shortly. What, what is um, uh, uh, that's Clay Higgins That's from Clay Higgins, Louisiana. And, right, and he went uh, on to talk about, well, how many meetings did Twitter have with the FBI? Was it 10? Was it 20? More than 20. Was it well, less than 50? And they went back and forth. I just well, didn't know how in bed they were together. Well, I mean, I, most of this has been nicely documented in the Twitter files, and uh, that's why I'm not so sure there was anything really new that came of yesterday. Uh, although it is good to remind, it is good to put them on uh, on the hot seat. It is good to you know establish their testimony in the context of a congressional hearing. 
I don't know how far the flag was advanced on this yesterday, though. In particular, it seemed like there was a lot of people that just wanted to vent a bit, including Clay Higgins from Louisiana when he said this. Bottom line is that the FBI had the Biden crime family laptop for a year. They knew it was leaking. They knew it would hurt the Biden campaign. So the FBI used its relationship with Twitter to suppress criminal evidence being revealed about Joe Biden one month before the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. You, ladies and gentlemen, interfered with the United States of America 2020 presidential election, knowingly and willingly. That's the bad news. It's going to get worse because this is the investigation part. Later comes the arrest part. <laughs> Your attorneys are familiar with that. Yeah. Oh, Later comes arrest. the arrest part. Well, that's... Um, yeah. That's uh, brash talk in a congressional hearing, but we'll see about that. I wouldn't hold out too much hope. And Representative, Vince, oh, sorry. Vince in St. Charles here in Chicago's morning. Uh, good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to be arrested. I don't, I, I would be shocked. But uh, the AOC, doesn't, isn't she married? Doesn't she have a man in her life? I'm holding up my fingers. She's got a man in her life? No, they're engaged. It was about the garbage disposal? He's technic I mean, technically, really. he's a man. Yeah, technically. Well, he's, and he's white. To marry her, I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, right, thank thanks you. for the call. I mean, why isn't she wearing, she's marrying a white guy, I don't know. Uh, Tina Joliet. Hi, good morning, guys. Um, it's so nice of AOC to be concerned about uh, threats against the organization that's mutilating children. Um, I was part of a, a group that went to Bourbon Street last night to the, uh, the event that was canceled um, because mm -hmm. of four days of non- stop violent threats made to uh, the owners of Bourbon Street, their staff, uh, the bands that were booked to play there, anybody affiliated with, with the event. To be clear, these people were protesting that we are, um, are advocating for parents to step up and fight against the, the mutilation of their children and the indoctrination of their children. They are siding with violent anarchists. And who? And well, the event, the event, the happened. event was you, the event was what? What what group? What it was, was the event? A, it was it was hosted by Gays Against Groomers, uh, Moms Across America, and a myriad of other um, uh, organizations fighting to protect children from this the uh, the radical agenda uh, uh -huh. of the left. And I mean, the the threats were unbelievable. The police department um, multiple times. Uh, asked Bourbon Street to cancel the event, saying that they would not have the ability to protect them. So the owner, who has been a, a stalwart in the community and done tremendous amount of, of um, hosting of events for uh, can conservative candidates and um, parent organizations, was had to make a really, really difficult decision um, and, and opted to, to err on the side of safety. And I, I'm going to ask the conservatives that are bashing him for, for canceling the event to, to uh, pump the brakes a bit. This is a guy, he's a small business owner. He had to do what he felt was right. And he had employees who were in tears. These are like 17, 18-year-old girls taking these calls, being told that not to show up because somebody's going to come and shoot up the place. So, uh, you know, we, this, uh, you know, her, uh, AOC's crocodile tears, she can go back to the, the fence section at Menards and cry. I, I, I'm so tired of hearing about how, you know, the 
we victimize the you know the the poor transgender community. This Antifa and tr- the transgender movement are hand in hand, and and they are as violent as possible. They're as um, as focused as possible. This was well organized. I've got I've taken all the screenshots. Many of the folks sharing this the flyer and asking people to call and uh, can't get the event canceled work for Chicago Public Schools. Well, of course. They have it right in their profile. Yeah, of course. That's not surprising. So, so yeah. The, exactly. uh, Antifa, CTU, and the trans movement. Uh, hand. Thanks for the call, Tina. Appreciate it. By the way, on the Boston Hospital, that uh, alleged bomb threat, Seth Dillon, the uh, editor-in-chief at the Babylon Bee, put up $25,000 for anybody who had information leading to the arrest of uh, anyone who made a bomb threat against Boston Children's Hospital. Yeah. I don't believe that money's been collected. No. Yeah. This is the second time, back to this one, this is the second time they've had to cancel this event. Yeah, displays and then Bourbon Street because the mob mob follows you, which is what people have to learn the hard way. Um, The idea that if you just retreat, they can come after you. You can retreat and they can chase you. You understand that? You understand that? We've been retreating in Illinois on every issue. So the center right has for so long we forgot what being on offense rhetorically intellectually of course uh what it what it looks like oh if we just retreat if we just surrender on this issue then they'll leave us alone no then they're going to make you surrender on the next issue that's how it actually works when you're dealing with a rapacious movement like these uh radical leftists these new marxists and then you're going to get cowered by uh by by AOC's pontificating, exactly what Tina said. Go pound sand, you simpleton. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Continuing our discussion of those uh, Twitter hearings yesterday, if you want to call them that, the House Oversight Committee, Jim Comer's committee, taking up the issue of how Twitter suppressed the Hunter Biden story and uh, impacted the 2020 election, of course. Yeah, they estimated that a million people would have voted or switched their vote to President Trump. The... um, Key, one of the key figures here, and uh, he's a key figure not just because of the job he had at Twitter, but because of the job he had prior to Twitter, which was general counsel of the FBI back in those heady days when Jim Comey and Andy McCabe ruled the roost. And uh, Peter Strzok and uh, his lovebird oh, that's were right. uh, in, you know. We'll take care of this. Trump can't win. Remember those text messages back and forth? Uh huh. Yeah. He was consoling his lava. Po poetic. Yes. Uh. In, uh. So, the, James Baker, and we'll go back to James Baker when he was at FBI. After you hear James Baker when he was at Twitter and his opening statement during testimony yesterday, wanting to set the record straight, you know, to protect his good name and all. First, I was not aware of, and certainly did not engage in any conspiracy or other effort to do anything unethical, improper, or unlawful while, while I was at Twitter, period. Liar. 
I did not act unlawfully or otherwise inappropriately in any manner with respect to Hunter Biden's laptop. Indeed, documents that Twitter has disclosed publicly reflect that I urged caution with respect to the matter and noted that we needed more information to fully assess what was going on and to decide what to do. Hardly a surprising piece of advice from a corporate lawyer. Moreover, I'm aware of no unlawful collusion with or direction from any government agency or political campaign on how Twitter should have handled the Hunter Biden laptop situation. Even though many disagree with how Twitter handled the Hunter Biden matter, I believe that the public record reveals that my client acted in a manner that was fully consistent with the First Amendment. I think that the best reading of the law is that as a private entity, the First Amendment protects Twitter and its content moderation decisions. And I do not believe that the facts in the public record indicate that Twitter became a state actor as that concept is defined under existing precedent such that the First Amendment would have constrained it. Second, I believe that at all times I executed my duties and responsibilities to my client, Twitter, lawfully and ethically. At no time was I an agent or operative of the government or any political actor when I worked at Twitter. To the contrary, I believe that I worked zealously and diligently within the bounds of the law in pursuit of my client's best interests. Not only is that challenged Mm -hmm. by the evidence that we have from the Twitter files, it's challenged by James Baker's performance in his previous job as general counsel for the FBI. And that's not me challenging it, uh, although it is me as well, but it's the basis of it is things like uh, the Horowitz Inspector General Report, DOJ Inspector General Report, that I know Comey and McCabe and Baker tried to use to demand an apology from Trump and that we're vindicated when Horowitz had to come after and say, uh, in no way does this report vindicate them. Uh, In point of fact, Horowitz criticized the leadership. I'm talking about Baker, who you just heard from, Comey and McCabe, for relying heavily on the dossier compiled by former British spy and paid dem operative Christopher Steele to obtain the FISA uh, FISA warrant for surveillance without informing the court of the dossier's origins or verifying its information. So it's it's very interesting to hear Baker talk about how methodical he was and how he was, you know, uh, asking questions to think through things because he, as any good corporate counsel will do, because he wanted to be meticulous and provide good advice and counsel to his clients and so forth. And none of that was afoot when he was the general counsel of the fracking FBI. Not a social media company, the FBI. But the FBI and Twitter were hand in hand. I mean, they had nine former FBI agents working at Twitter. So much that they had their own like code for BU, for Bureau, working together to suppress information, whether it be on COVID, but mostly Hunter Biden's laptop one month before the election. Horowitz uh, told Josh Hawley, going back to the review of this guy Mm -hmm. and the FBI, because this is all, you know, this this is dance of the lemons here. James Baker goes to. FBI, Peter Strzok, after his inflagrate delecto with, uh, what was it, Page, uh, he goes over to Georgetown. McCabe's over on MSNBC. Jim Comey's writing books. I mean, the dance of the lemons. They keep showing up and in sensitive positions like Baker at Twitter. Um, uh, in questioning about the report and whether or not there was politics at play, Horowitz didn't want to go there. 
Horowitz telling uh, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley at the time, we've been very careful in the connection with the FISAs for the reasons you mentioned, not to not reach that conclusion about politics. As we've talked about earlier, the alteration of the email, Kevin Kleinsmith, felony, plot out, text messages associated with the individual who did that, and our inability to explain or understand, to get good explanations so we could understand why all this happened. So he didn't draw a conclusion, Horowitz did, the inspector general, because he couldn't find an evidentiary basis, but he's essentially providing, uh, uh, well, he's leading you down to that conclusion because he says, we can't make sense of it. So what That's else could it be? Yeah. I don't want to say it, but what else could it possibly be that motivated uh, those individuals? That explains the uh, multitude of errors, you know, slipshoddiness and so on and so forth. That was Comey's cover. Oh, you know, I was in his detail. It was like, ta- it was like Biden talking about classified documents. Uh, you know, errors were made, documents moved themselves around, so on and so forth. Nothing else could explain it. Horowitz couldn't explain it, but he wouldn't draw the conclusion of politics. But that's the obvious conclusion. And so James Baker goes over to Twitter, and now he's just on the other side of the same equation with a little bit of different job description and more tools at his disposal. Old friends at FBI, now all these Twitter minders like Yoel Roth to do his bidding. And one three, person, oh, three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in. DA, then a quick comment. And one congresswoman, you you know her, uh, Bobert, she uh, was not happy. She asked about shadow banning. She was not uh, shy yesterday. Did either of you approve the shadow banning of my account at Lauren Bobert? Yes or no? No, I did not. Wow. Not to the best of my recollection. Well, let me refresh your memory because on March 12th, 2021, and Mr. Roth, I know you looked at it because. Fascist Twitter 1.0 had a public interest exceptions policy, which means for members of Congress to be shadow banned, it had to go before you, Mr. Roth. So I'll ask again, did you shadow ban my account? Yes or no? Again, not to the best of my recollection. So the answer is, Mr. Roth, yes, you did. I found out last night from Twitter staff that you suppressed my account for this tweet. It's a freaking joke about Hillary Clinton being angry that she couldn't rig her election. It's a joke. But in response, being the sinister overlords that you all are, you placed a 90-day account filter so I could not be found. And now we see here that Twitter staff said the visibility filter on my account excluded me from top searches, prevented notifications for non-followers, and much more. This is considered an aggressive visibility filter. You silenced members of Congress from communicating with their constituents. You, could, you silenced me from communicating with the American people over a freaking joke. Now, who the hell do you think that you are? Yeah, that's not very persuasive to me, I got to tell you. I got to tell you, you know, Congress and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, too. It's not helpful to make it about yourself. Number well, she one. went on then to say you not only did it to me, but to President Trump and to other like kick President Trump off. Yeah, I, I, I get it, but... Uh, it was election interference is what she was trying well, to get at. And she's... How is, how is that election interference for... Oh, it's election interference for her election? Yes. You know, if, 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 I, if, I, well, if I don't allow you into my forum and you're a politician, then I've, I'm interfering with your... You want to use my forum for whatever you want to use it for? And I say no. Well, she didn't then, know, then so I'm, she was shadow banned. Then, then, then I'm interfering with your elections? No, no, I don't think so. 
So in case people don't know what shadow banning is on Twitter, it means that what you're tweeting, it doesn't show up on the main feed. Yeah, only to your followers. Only to your followers. Yeah. I don't no. know if she's saying, is this persuasive? I, just... I am angry for the millions of no, Americans who were silenced because of your decisions, because yep. of your actions, because of your collusion with the federal government. They can't reach out to Elon. They can't sit here today and hold you into account. We don't know where the FBI ends and Twitter begins. Well, that's the, now you're getting to it. Okay. <sighs> the, so the question that James Baker tried to preempt and offer his you know, great legal opinion is Twitter acting as a state agent for the FBI or other government agencies, CDC, NIH. And then you have a potential problem. I mean, a legal problem. Right. Uh, if it's not, then it's not. But this, this is the debate. That's one of the debates. The other debate, which is more of a cultural one, less a legal one, is, um, but it, it, there are some legal implications. It, these are the rules you set forth in terms of your content moderation policies. Now, if you deviate from those rules and you're doing so for political reasons to support, say, the candidacy of Joe Biden for president of the United States, then you're acting as a political actor, and there should potentially, that maybe that implicates some campaign finance disclosures. I don't know. That's a bit of a reach, but it's certainly a conversation to hold people accountable to the standards they say they're setting when it comes to the operation of their business. You know, Boebert being shadow banned, Marjorie Taylor Greene's account being suspended. Yeah, I mean, if to the extent you can fit those into, here, these are your standards. Now explain the decision consistent with your standards. And there was part of that conversation was the back and forth and the disagreement, which, again, this is not new. It's already been all disclosed in right. the Twitter files, uh, where uh, Yoel Roth concluded that the Hunter Biden New York Post story, the Hunter Biden laptop story, should not have been suppressed. But the decision was made to do it anyway. Right. And so and, what, where, what, what happens next? Any, any consequences for those actions? I mean, that it was election interference because Trump lost be, in due part because of that information that was suppressed. Well, that's 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 a theory. Yeah. There's some, you know, there, there's some research to suggest that's possible. What law does that violate? Uh, yeah. I, I don't I, it's not clear to me. So this is this is not. I mean, that's why I go back to what Clay Higgins said from Louisiana about this is the investigation part and next comes the arrest part. I don't think you're going to see any arrests and I'm not sure any are warranted. But this public airing is warranted and a discussion uh, is warranted, uh, particularly as it pertains to the state and running uh, people's First Amendment protections by using private actors to do the state's bidding. That, to me, is the fundamental issue. And then there's some other ancillary issues like the standards you set and the decisions you make and your transparency. And are you perpetrating a fraud or violating terms of service with your customers? Are you improperly sharing private information? All of those other issues. But that fundamental issue, are you serving as a state actor? Are you colluding with the government knowingly to do their bidding so they can end run the restraints the First Amendment puts on the federal government. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Twitter and maybe some of these other social media companies were, you know, volunteering for that position 
and that should be explored much more deeply than it was yesterday. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. In the uh, 2022 election cycle, I had the honor of being able to retell the story of Sergeant James Severin through the words of his niece, Jean Cable. This was uh, uh, a Chicago police officer, Sergeant James Severin, who, along with uh, his partner that night in 1970, Officer Anthony Rosado, were assassinated walking across a field near the Cabrini Green housing complex. And uh, why retelling the story uh, some five decades later? Because uh, Governor Pritzker's, how I would describe it, anti-cop Illinois Police Review Board released one of the men responsible for their murders. And the other one will probably be released when the Illinois Prisoner Review Board takes takes up his case for parole this year. And Gene Cable, who I featured in the commercial and the the story about her uncle, James Severin. Uh, You know, it was an opportunity for a a family who had spent all this time trying to, five decades, trying to um, essentially uh, secure justice for their fallen family member and Chicago police officer by making sure that the life sentences that were handed out were the life sentences that were served only to be shanghaied by the Illinois Prison Review Board back in 2021. It's an opportunity for them, I think, to have some catharsis about what happened, and even though they were so mistreated by their government, um, and, um, and know that they did everything they could to preserve his legacy and honor his service. And so, um, you know, it's just a sort of, it's a sad, it's a, bit of a melancholy story on the one hand, but um, great family, uh, Sergeant James Severn's family, and it was a gr- great to, to get to meet them. And it was uh, really an exhibition of courage for Jean Cable to wade into the political arena to make the case on behalf of her family, the Rosado family as well, and specifically her uncle. And so we have another case here with respect to our next guest, another uh, Chicago police officer who gave his life in the line of duty who has been underappreciated, at least that seems to be the perspective of Matt Hader, who's a screenwriter and novelist. He previously studied at Second City and worked in Chicago radio. We'll oh. have to learn more about that. His new book, Protector, the Harry Belwamini story. Matt Hader, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me on, Dan and Amy. Uh, all right, what did you do in Chicago radio before we get to it? Oh, my God. It was a long time ago. I'm dating myself. Yeah. I worked at WWMM for a while. That was in Arlington Heights. Uh, that station became WSEX. Oh, right. 92.7. I remember. There you go. Because yeah. I grew then, up in that area. So. Any okay. Station, any right. station and we got out of bled into it. <laughs> I worked at WJKL in Elgin for a little while, too. Okay. And I was, I, was a, I was a child. At the time, were you were you spinning that. records? Were you uh, yeah. doing impersonations? Yeah. What were you doing? I did a little of everything. Um, I did uh, kind of uh, fake commercials. I would do just goofy stuff. You know, 
No. And aren't you, aren't you yeah. the uncle of Bill Hader from Saturday Night Live? I am one of his uncles, yes. One of his many uncles. Oh, okay. And he, yeah, he's a talented man. Yes, he is. He's a very, very funny guy. Um, all right, well, let's get to your book here. Um, tell us about Harry Bellamini and why you chose to, um, you know, essentially dedicate the time to write a book about him. Well, when I was, um, I actually worked as a 911 communications officer uh, also uh, for the city of Evanston. And then I moved to where my wife uh, grew up uh, outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. And I worked down there as a 911 dispatcher as well. So I understood, uh, you know, police uh, tactics and whatnot. And I watched on the WGN uh, that uh, there was a shooting at the the uh, Dirksen Federal Building. This is in 1992, in July of 1992. And then I found out that one of the officers who was uh, murdered in the basement there was a fellow Edison Park uh, uh, resident. And it just, it just hit me. And, and I didn't understand why there were not a lot of stories about this man. Uh, it, when the, for, the story first broke, uh, it seemed as if the the bad guy uh, offed himself, which he kind of did, and they never gave any credit to what really went on uh, in the media generally. A little bit trickled out, and then it kind of faded, as stories do. You know, I get it, human nature, nature of the media. Um, but it always stuck with me. It bothered me that no one was talking about Harry Bellwomany. And then all of a sudden, there's movies and exposés coming out about the bad guy in this uh, in this chapter, and he was kind of glorified, and it was it bothered me. It bothered me for a long time, even though I was writing at the time. I didn't feel that I had the wherewithal or the talent to uh, write a story about this man. And finally, about four years ago, five years ago almost, I started digging into this, and that's how this uh, project. Well, came to be. Tell us about that day. What happened? What happened was there was a uh, a man named Jeffrey Erickson, who was a former police officer himself. He was on trial. He was alleged to have robbed several banks in the Chicago area, and he was very good at what he did. Um, they called him the Bearded Bandit. And what happened was apparently he, he secured a handcuff key in jail somehow. And he had that key on, on him probably throughout the entire trial. So on the sixth or seventh day, I believe, of his trial, he unhooked, he unlocked his uh, handcuffs in an elevator as he was being transported after court back to the, uh, uh, the MCC. And he uh, battered a U.S. Marshal, got her gun, and then shot and killed another U.S. Marshal, and then Harry Bellwomany, uh, who could have basically just ducked behind a car, went right after this man. I mean, right after him and did what he was supposed to do. And he wound up paying the ultimate price. Um, Harry wound up actually shooting and killing the man. And then the man put a gun to his own head and finished himself off. So that was, that's the, the gist of that. I don't, you know, there's more, in, more detail in the book, obviously. Um, but that, that's what happened. And then the family, uh, you know, it was just crushing for the, for the Bellwomany family after that. 
Uh, Belwamini, so he he shot the, uh, the the bearded bandit, and the bearded bandit shot him. There's an exchange of gunfire, right? Yeah, it was actually the beard the bearded bandit shot Harry Belwamini twice, and okay. as he sat dying on the floor, he was able to raise his gun and shoot the uh, the bad guy in the back, and wow. it went right through his heart. Wow! Yeah, something out of a movie. Um, was, so yeah, so, he was incredible. Yeah. And so, so tell us about then your interactions with the Belwamini family, and and you know thinking about uh, th- uh, three decades that have passed, and and how that uh, clearly changed the trajectory of their lives. Yeah, well, I, let me just put it this way: the Belwamini family is incredibly resilient. They are so strong. I mean, incredible. Uh, they um, each of Harry's children uh, went on to become Chicago police officers. Wow. Uh, yeah, one is currently a police officer right now. Um, his two other children, Karen and Mike, uh, have retired, and Anne is still active at this time. So what I did was I was researching this, and I, I, was, I, I actually was looking for other books, like if someone else wrote a book about this. And I was like, wow, there's actually nothing about this man. And it kind of it bothered me. So I started digging in and uh, doing some research. But, you know, it only takes you so far. And I finally, I wrote a letter to Anne. I, I thought I had the right Anne. I did a white pages search. And I sent her a letter, told her what I was trying to do. And uh, a few months later, she called me and said I, I got the letter to the right person. And uh, she and her uh, brother and sister would like to meet for lunch. And we met at... Uh, Moretti's out in Medicine Park, oh, yeah. the old standby. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and we just hit it off immediately. We we all kind of grew up around there. I grew up in Park Ridge, but I was right on the Chicago border, oh, and we, know. we used to hang out in Medicine Park. You know, so we understood each other, and uh, I got to know so much, so so much more as you know you'll see in the book. Well, you know, as an example, I mentioned that the Sergeant James Severn story um, that yeah. I. I got familiar with um, last year, and one of the things that was interesting to learn about him is, you know, his sense of service and love of the city. That he actually was considering going into the priesthood before he decided wow, yeah. to go, uh, become a Chicago cop instead. But to, so it was a sense of serving, you know, being a servant leader, and he was thinking it was going to be in one way, and it turned out to be in another. And I wonder, you know, sort of what other things you learned about uh, Belwamini that that uh, you know that people should know that provide more. Uh, texture to who he was well the, uh, harry bellomini and his wife millie uh who's just awesome <laughs> i love that woman she uh th- they raised some great kids their kids are so service-minded uh it, it's it's second nature to them uh what they do and, they, and it comes from their father and their mother um harry would he had a rare blood type and he was called upon to give blood to people uh, all the time, and he would do it. He'd just go do it, and he was that—he was that kind of guy, you know. And uh, the whole family is like that. And it, it's funny when you talk to him, and you'll see in the book a lot of his conversations with them. They kind of play down what they're what they actually do. I don't think they even realize what they're doing. They just do it, and, and it, it's uh, it's incredible to witness. And because of this horrific shooting, now the way inmates are transferred between courthouses is not the same. How did they, you know, what did they do? Yeah, that was, uh, there was, there was a lot of trouble with the U.S. Marshals at the time is, you know, um, I don't think they actually had a permanent leader here. 
uh, or there. I'm, I'm actually in, in Nashville. Sorry. Um, uh, but and it was, they were not doing, I don't think they were doing things properly. Um, a few of the officers that I spoke with in the book will talk about, they, they do talk about that. Um, but it's just, there's different techniques to handcuffing people. They handcuffed him, the, the uh, bad actor, in the front. And, oh. and they, they did not have leg chains on him. He was just able to get free and batter that officer, and he was on the run, literally. And he was a big man. He was like 6'4", 240, and athletic. So it was it was a scary situation for them. So I think they're a lot more careful, hopefully, uh, overall, you the, know, in uh, transporting. The U.S. Marshals also changed the way they interact with the media after Amy Jacobson had a bit part in U.S. Marshals oh, the movie. So I, don't know if, I don't know if you know about that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah seven seconds of my life. Yeah. Let me tell you. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, and and so now is this is this your first uh, uh, nonfiction novel or book? It is. Yeah. Not, well, not, actually, it's not. I I, uh, I wrote a book with a friend of mine. He's passed away a few years back. His name was Pat Denizio. Yeah. He was the lead singer for the rock group The Smithereens. Oh yeah. And yeah. he was a buddy. He was a buddy of mine, and we wrote a book together. But this is the this is really the first nonfiction that I really dug into. And it, it, I knew it would take a while. <laughs> and then COVID happened yeah. and it took me four years to, to do this four solid years, just to track everyone down. And it, unfortunately, or fortunately for the book and the, uh, and the, you know, anyone who reads it, so, uh, several of the officers I've spoken with have since passed away. Mm. So, I was lucky to get their thoughts. They're just incredible humans. So, I got uh, guys that guys that work with uh, Bell yeah, uh, right. Bell Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. Matt Hader is a screenwriter, and novelist, previously studied at Second City, and worked in Chicago radio. As we discussed, the new book, Protector: The Harry Bellwomany Story. I think I'm mispronouncing his yeah. name all the time. It's Bellwomany. 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 The Harry yeah. Bellwomany yeah. Story. Protector is the right. book. Matt Hader, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. But, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, and have a great day. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Deputy, do you have anything to add? No. Listen to podcasts of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, you know, we exported uh, two of the uh, leading lights of the left in Massachusetts from here in Chicago, right? You That's got, right. The uh, mayor of Boston is from uh, oh Stevenson. No, I think. Yeah, well, no. she went to. I think she's from Barrington. I don't know where she went oh, to high school. She, I, she went to Barrington High School. Excuse Michelle me. Michelle Wu. Yes, right? she's from Barrington. Yep. Uh, and uh, and of course you have uh, Francis Parker Spice, oh, yeah. Ayanna Presley, right? She went to yeah. She went to Francis Parker. Francis Parker, right. Yeah, that's, sure. Hence the name. Yeah. Francis Parker Spice. Well, uh, they're uh, teaming up to come up with all kinds of fun ideas. Oh, I see. Uh, like, for example, a uh, reparations task force. The Boston Reparations Task Force. Yes. Yeah. Hi, and uh, they've just named uh, three uh, individuals to the 10-person committee that will decide if Boston's black community should receive reparations. Gosh, I wonder what they'll decide. 
the uh, three of the uh, uh, appointees, two are high school juniors. Oh, boy. <laughs> and one is a 22-year-old University of Massachusetts student who will completely miss the irony. Um, yeah, so the, I, want, I, I, can't, I can't wait to hear what this Boston Reparations Committee Juniors in high school? On this. Two, two juniors what? and uh, 22 year old. They're three of the 10. I mean, and, yeah, you know, maybe okay. they'll see San Francisco's. Who's who came up with five million bucks per? I and think somebody on San one Francisco. Of their boards on the yeah, San, Fr- maybe see, San Francisco. What, see your five million, make it six. We'll see what they come up with. But, um, you know, this Black History Month. So for the identitarian left, this is an opportunity to uh, amplify all of your customary grievances against America and particularly us honkies. And uh, we saw that, too. It's not just in terms of reparations committees. And, hey, why didn't Chicago have one, by the way? That's a question for all those oh, mayoral candidates. Right. Why does Illinois have one? That's a question for Governor Jelly Belly. I want to know the answer. Um, but also, of course, uh, in all sorts of entertainment, uh, including we played this bit earlier in the week, but I think you should hear it again because it speaks to larger culture. Uh, beyond race, our larger sort of socio-political culture. This uh, from a show, cartoon, so tar- targeting kids, called Proud Family on the Disney Plus channel. It uh, takes place in a high school setting, wh- and this uh, is like a, uh, yeah, like a talent show. And so there's these group of there's this group of girls that do a poetry slam sort of presentation. This country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. Tilled this land from sea to sea to sea. First there was rice, tobacco, sugar cane. Then Whitney did his thing and cotton became king. And we were its soldiers. Four, Four million, million strong. Fighting for America's freedoms, even though we remained America's slaves. slaves. Built this country. The descendants of slaves continue to build this. Slaves built this country. And we, the descendants of slaves in America, have earned reparations for their suffering. And continue to earn reparations every moment we spend submerged in the system. Systemic prejudice, racism, and white supremacy that America was founded with and still has not atoned for. Slaves built this country. Not only field hands, but carpenters, masons, blacksmiths, musicians, inventors built cities from Jamestown to New Orleans, Savannah, Kansas, Washington. 40 acres and a mule. We'll take the 40 acres, keep the mule. We, we made your families rich. From the southern plantation heirs to the northern bankers to the New England ship owners, the founding fathers, former president, current the Illuminati, the New World Order. Slaves built this country. We had Tubman, Turner, Frederick D. Then they say Lincoln freed the slaves. But slaves were men. And women. And only we can free ourselves. Emancipation is not freedom. Jim Crow, segregation, redlining, public schools, feeding private prisons, where we become slaves again. As we celebrate Juneteenth for the umpteenth time, our account is still outstanding. Because this country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. And we demand our 40 acres. And a mule. You can keep the mule. Keep the 40. We're taking our freedom. Yeah, standing ovation. Well, I mean, I remember when cartoon characters were happy because if you watch this video, these alleged cartoon characters are so angry. They have like the heat of a thousand suns exuding from them. For more on this, please to be joined by Jason Hill, philosophy professor at DePaul University, author of What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. Jason, thanks for joining us, as always. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan and Amy. Thank you. Um, so uh, 
I don't know if I, you know, I don't want to force you into doing a review of Disney cartoons, but um, speak to the larger culture and uh, what we're seeing with the the uh, increasing instance of reparations committees, this sort of content piped through entertainment channels, particularly targeting uh, young people. What do you think? Well, you know, I warned about this when the California Initiative was pushed through about two and a half years ago. I said, I think I said it on your show, but I, I knew I wrote about it. And I said that reparations was going to be the next big topic that was going to engulf America in about the next two to three years. I think this is this is has not yet happened fully, but we see signs of it in the in the minstrel minstrel show that is the proud family. It's just one big minstrel show that's an indoctrination for young kids. Um, this is part of the plan to. It's not just the indoctrination initiative. It's part of the plan to move this country towards really far left towards socialism. And there are many ways to indoctrinate the country towards socialism. One is by inducing guilt among white people, by using children, among other things, as pawns in use guilt, because who, who can doubt, you know, the rightness and the and the, the innocence of, of young children uh, proclaiming that they are harmed. If a young child says, I'm harmed, and I continue to be harmed by white supremacy and systemic racism, and it's coming from children and the anger of children. And a righteous family. Um, there, there are circuitous ways in which you slide into socialism, and that's this just one way. You uh, wrote in a, a recent piece over at American Mind. Um, you were writing about the Tyree Nichols case, but you made some larger points. And one of the things you wrote is, when we speak of Black American culture today, we're talking about a culture that is broken, bereft of values, moral heft, and sustained leadership. It is self-destructing. It is a thug culture that contributes little of any intellectual, aesthetic, or moral value to the world at large. That's a yeah. stinging indictment. Um, you want to elaborate on that? I, I, and provide but, a, a little bit more uh, texture to that. Well, I think when you look out at, you know, there was one, there were, there was a time when you could look at a black culture and you could see intellectual leadership, whether one agreed with the philosophy of Martin Luther King or not. I mean, there is, he's one of my heroes, but I certainly don't stand with him on, on some of his more socialistic principles. But there was more leadership. There was a, a rich music tradition that emerged out of Motown. Uh, there was a rich artistic culture. Um, there used to be a community of entrepreneurs that, could be celebrated. I think, you know, when one thinks of black culture today, what does one think of? One thinks of, you know, Cardi B, one thinks of Beyonce, one thinks of Al Sharpton. Uh, it is bereft of, 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 of any kind. One thinks of Cornel West, who, I mean, I, I used to know him personally. He used to be a very gracious man. He's become a, a sort of warrior for social, radical socialism and sort of like a, a demagogue. That's why I asked in the article for people to think of when you think of black culture do you think of something that you would want to pass on to your children uh you think of it as broken you think of thug culture you think of nothing but want and destruction nihilism and mayhem and it's true um i think candace owen says recently when somebody said to her um why do you why do you why do you not want to save black culture she says, I, I want to destroy it and then and then build it up uh we think of crime we think of broken families, 
we don't think of the nuclear family as we once did before 1962. Uh, the marriage rate um, out out of out of birth but out of birth um, um, marriage rates for blacks is something like 22 percent, which means that it's 72 percent today. That is 72 percent of all African Americans are born out of marriage. That's 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 quite a broken and bereft cultural trend. Um, so it is. It is. It does seem quite broken to me um, that we have all these individuals coming from these broken homes, and we can sort of predict the behaviors that are going to be forthcoming uh, from these individuals. I don't think of anything really, really positive. I think of victim identity politics. I think of victim a victim narrative that's coming out of the black community. So I think there's these, these, these truths, these shibboleths that have to be broken, that black culture is something rich and contributing rich. There are certain black individuals, of course, who are performing quite well. But I think when we think of the culture, we have to just admit that it, since the 1960s, it's been precipitously broken and been breaking apart. And today it stands as a broken pathological culture. Well, you write in your article that, you know, the black community is uh, celebrating and encouraging each other to murder their own, hypersexualize each other, and sell, steal, and consume drugs. Doesn't it, in part, the white culture, white people do that as well? Well, by consuming the music, certainly. I mean, and the way that black music was, was marketed in the, in the 90s to, to white teenagers. Um, but um, white people are not really going into in neighborhoods and carjacking and stealing and committing a disproportionate amount of a crime. So... Primarily, it's, it's blacks who are being the creators of these contents and celebrating and enacting themselves the very content that they're creating. That is the the subculture that I described occurring in in black music. Uh, the very creators themselves, these gangster rappers and so on and so forth, are the ones who are living this lifestyle, and they're rewarded financially. So whites and other groups are consumers of the content and are just sort of, I don't know if I want to call them sadistic or whatever, but they're just like voyeurs of black culture. It's entertainment for them, for black people. Uh, it, they're, they're not just celebrants. They're actually enacting that which they're, in, that, that which they're consuming. And it's time for someone or a group of people to sort of really stand up and say, is hypersexualization, drug addiction, violence, and murder that you are sanctioning and endorsing really the proper way to go forward. Someone really has to hold these individuals accountable and say, is this kind of behavior worth extolling? Is it really virtuous? I think there's just very few people in the culture that are doing that. Candace Owens is one such person. Well, it's I know Larry Elder is yeah. Yeah. another person. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because the um... – the 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 identitarians would would basically concede a lot of the same things about, about the the um, pathologies that affect afflict the black community and the community at large, but dis, you know disproportionately the black community. But then they just ha- assign a uh, assign you know, white supremacy as the responsible uh, the responsible party for all of these afflictions. So it's not like they're really defending what's happening, although there is the glamorization of drug use and and that sort of thing. But but they they see the same things, so they have to come up with an explanation for it, and um, so they strip uh, black people of agency, and they call they just uh, put 
place all the blame on white supremacy, right? That's what they do. But then I point, you know, I would point to other ethnic groups as I think, I'm, well, I don't think it's, I will, this came under the article, but I would point to Jews, for example, right? Jews have been through enormous suffering. I don't, I, to me, they're the most persecuted people on the face of, of the planet since their inception over 3,000 years ago. But they've always been responsible for their, they've always taken responsibility for their suffering. They've never claimed a victim status. Even after the Holocaust, they didn't walk around claiming, you know, I want reparations from Germany. And they've never internalized, here's the deal, they've never internalized the stereotypical tropes and the stereotypes that others have held of them in a manner that have caused them, that has caused them, I should say, inflict harm, egregious and gratuitous, wanton harm on other people. So there are other, there are other groups that have been subject to so-called white supremacist behavior that have not internalized these norms in such a way that they inflict harm on people. So I'm not buying the fact that black people inflict harm on themselves because white supremacists is this big boogeyman that haunts and permeates every nook and cranny of their cultural life, that they're incapable. It's like they inject, in the, um, they swallow these idea pathogens that come out of white supremacist culture and they're incapable of sort of inoculating themselves against this. I say... Poof, yeah, right. I mean, what, 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 so, so if you, you can't, if you start from the premise that, uh, that black people are intelligent, sentient beings, generally speaking, just like anybody else, it's a normal distribution, just like any other race. And so, and white supremacy is the, is the bugaboo. So the way I'm going to deal with the ravages of white supremacy is I'm going to kill other black people. 93% of black victims are killed by black assailants. So what kind of sense does that make? How is that striking a blow against white supremacy? You would think they would strike, they would be killing whites at a higher rate, but they're actually killing blacks at a higher rate, that they would turn that anger and that revenge against other white people. Um, but the statistics show that they kill, it, the intra-racial killings are much higher than the, than the intra, than the inter-racial killings are much, you know. So, 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 where where are we at is is it is it like we talk about sort of Chicago or Illinois writ large transcending race that it's just not bad enough yet? Is that where we're at with the with um, with the black community with black families in America vis a vis white families and everybody else? Is that is that where we are with our our larger culture? It's just got to get worse. You mean with the reparations or with the black on black crime? Uh, all of the above. Well, I think once when it starts to hit home, right? Like I think when people realize that with the crime invading certain communities, like in Chicago, in my neighborhood, Lakeview and Lincoln Park, I live on the coast. When it starts to hit home, that people are going to start waking up because you know if it's just on the south side and it's just not affecting other demographic groups, then it's it's, it's fine. But once it starts really hitting home, then you know, or satanic mayor, I call her the satanic mayor, Lightfoot, uh, who seems to hate the police and seems to want, to, uh, and, or attorney, um, um, I can't remember her name right Kim now, Fox. but you know I'm talking about. Kim it. Fox. Kim yeah. Fox, right. She's the other devil also, uh, who refuses to prosecute. I mean, these people just go, and we hopefully we'll elect officials that will enforce the law fund the police, pay the police a lot more money and hire police, more police officers and build more jails. Um, but it's going to have to hit home. And as far as the reparations 
I don't think most people really take it seriously. When I talk to people, it seems like this abstract concept. And it's like this, this thing that is happening in D.C. and it's happening in other states and it's happening as this sort of this thing that is happening in, in um, congressional buildings and public buildings, but it's not going to affect their lives. And I think when laws are actually passed, and people really realize that reparations is something quite serious that it's going to sweep the country. It's just going to get very, very ugly, and, if, and the country is going to see that the resentment and the racial tensions are unfortunately, I think, going to probably exacerbate. And, and, uh, but, you know, like with any other phenomenon, including I talked about this with the, with the transing of America, uh, where more people are now becoming outraged by trans ideology. When it first started, most people thought it was just a fad. It was just going to go away. It's now becoming increasingly worse. We're in the throes of trans transgenderism. Um, and people are waking up and finding out that the children are coming home with a different gender I- identity than they left home with, and they're being gendered by their teachers, or non-gendered, I should say, by their teachers, and they're angry. I belong to a, a, an organization called Parents Unite, when we talk about these things, uh, unfortunately, most people have to be hit over the head twice by a hammer before they realize that two plus two equals four, or they have to experience it before they, they make the connections. And I think that, Amy, that's what's going to happen, both with the yeah. reparations and with the, the issue of, of, issue of um, crime. He is philosophy professor Jason Hill. He's over at DePaul. The book, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. Jason Hill, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan Nina. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's morning answer. Morning answer on AM 560. The answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, uh, podcaster and documentarian now, Matt Walsh. What is a woman? Did that documentary that came out recently? I haven't seen it yet. Have you? I have. It's, it's good. Okay. It's good. He was testifying before the uh, Tennessee state legislature about legislation that you see being uh, debated, argued over in a lot of states at present that would ban trans surgery for minors. And he had this exchange with a state representative named Caleb Hemmer, who's a Democrat from Nashville. Uh, See, that's the thing with leaving Chicago, go to Nashville. I know that's attractive. Nashville's too big, Democrat. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's the landing spot. But anyway, uh, Matt Walsh, uh, his exchange with that uh, Dem state rep. Well, people are adults uh, at 18, uh, but actually your, your brain is not fully developed until you're 25. So we should be having a conversation about whether we should even be doing these surgeries to people at 18. But certainly before 18, it's, it's absurd. I mean, do you, do, you, do you think that a 16-year-old can meaningfully consent to having their body parts removed? Do, do you? No? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Yeah. yeah. No. No. Yes. Anyone? No. Oh, really? We do not. Yeah, we asked the question. We, uh, we, not... asked, we asked the question. We, we, don't, we don't give answers. We uh, ask the question. Uh, Representative Hammer, you're recognized. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. 
Yeah. All right. Go back to asking your questions. Now you ask your little questions. You fill out your little questionnaire. Right. Um, other questions that could be asked uh, probably would draw the same response as, I don't know, should a um, you know, guy who's you know, 6'5 and 215 pounds be competing in sports with women? Oh, like a six is. foot five, a former Navy SEAL who joined a European women's basketball team and slammed uh, so many, the balls down the throats of everybody on the opposing team. Too many examples, uh, unfortunately, to go through, uh, which uh, is what prompted, I suppose, in part, this op-ed from Riley Gaines in the Wall Street Journal on the occasion that former Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, who himself played basketball in college, is going to be the NCAA's new president. And she would like to hear what he has to say and offer some perspective as an All-American college athlete herself on this issue of biological men playing women's sports. She uh, sort of provided an open letter to him to say, I'd love to meet with you and bring other athletes and have a conversation about it here from, uh, you know, premier female athletes about this, uh, this participation of men in our sports. Sounds like a good idea. Riley Gaines is a 12-time NCAA All-American swimmer, a 2022 graduate of the University of Kentucky, and the, and the spokeswoman for Independent Women's Forum. Riley Gaines, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you guys so much. So um, have you heard from Charlie Baker yet? I have not heard from Charlie Baker yet. Um, uh-huh. I sent him a letter a couple weeks ago to which I have not received a response. And what is it that you and perhaps some of your um, your, your your former teammates or uh, current college athletes, female athletes, want to tell Mr. Baker? We want to tell him that what we experienced at our NCAA championships last year competing against Leah Thomas, who, like you guys explained, was six foot four fully intact as a male, um, we want to tell him that what we experienced was discrimination on the basis of sex, which is, of course, what Title IX was created to protect. It feels like we've done a total 180 um, from back to 1972, where time traveling 50 years. I sent him that letter speaking up for more than just myself. There are so many, especially present female athletes, who are emotionally blackmailed and just intimidated into silence by their universities. And so I'm trying to be a voice for, um, again, not just myself, but the present female athletes, um, the past female athletes who fought relentlessly for Title IX, and, of course, the future female athletes who don't yet quite understand the implications this will have on them as well. But the, these these uh, former, you're not former, but the swimmers that you know that are afraid to come forward, they know that this is wrong, though, and it's not a level playing field, right? Absolutely. I can't even tell you the amount of, I mean, of course, present female athletes, but elite Olympians, both male and female, who have messaged me privately saying, thank you so much for what you're doing. I can't speak up because I don't want to lose my sponsorships or I don't want to lose my scholarship, but we support you. And yeah. at first I truly felt so honored by this, but now I'm realizing that these people are part of the problem. Right, right. Yeah, now especially in the era of the NIL, not just my scholarship, but, you know, my additional income flow, uh, yeah, with corporate sponsors. That's that's actually another wrinkle I hadn't really considered, but that's, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, right. So, so what? What about um, what about male athletes coming forward to say that this is inappropriate? It's it's like it's you, um, it's uh, other female athletes uh, generally, but um, there seems to be a lot of male athletes who are scaredy cats too. Exactly. I think they're looking at this as if it's not really their problem because, of course, the male category isn't under threat. Even with the possibility of trans men competing in their category, that doesn't threaten any of their um, success. So Maybe the Northwestern like, men's football team, but that, that would be about it. Yeah. yeah, right. I feel like they think it's kind of not really their problem, and that is not the right way of looking at this. This is an injustice to not just female athletes, it's so far beyond that. Um, this, of course, affects men, it affects women, it affects people who aren't athletes, because if you have a child who plays a sport, if you have a sister, if you have a mom, you know, there's so, this carries on so far beyond just one person personally. And so being silent is complicity. But I think the Leah Thomas story, that, that woke Americans up, because I know some people who are just, you know, well, it's all right. You know, it's just one player. It's just, you know, one sport. Right. But that seemed to anger America when she took totally aw- he agree. took awards away that you guys deserve, that you worked for. Totally. Um, when you put a man on a woman's podium stealing their, their honors, their titles, their scholarships, it sends a clear message to women. And that message is that you don't matter and you are simply there to validate the existence and the feelings and the identity of a man. And you're right, that that is something that infuriates people, people who don't necessarily consider themselves a feminist. I by no means before all of this would have considered myself a feminist, but I feel like we've kind of as a society, we've developed a new term for feminism, and I call it a modern day feminist, which just means that women deserve respect and equal opportunities, which is wild to even have to be (laughs) arguing. Yeah, it's interesting that there is some... um sort of a, a solidarity across the political spectrum on this, too. I mean, with somebody like Martina Navratilova mm-hmm. willing to come forward and say, you know, basically that, you know, this this can't stand. This is no good. Um, this doesn't work. And and but but it still seems like it's there's just there's more fear than there is a rallying going on. Definitely. Um, and I do. I, I truly hate that this issue has become political because sports are the one thing where Politics should never interfere. But truthfully, this is so blatantly obvious in terms of understanding the biological differences between men and women that this is a winning issue for Republicans. They, of course, see this and they want to seize the opportunity. Um, This is a winning issue for anyone. um, And that's why I think this issue is special. I feel like there are very few things in politics where majority of people across the political spectrum can agree. But, of course, nearly all Republicans agree, and I think it's nearly 50, 60 percent of Democrats agree with this this topic. And so the Republicans are definitely seizing the moment on winning this issue. All right. So two days ago, the World Surf League uh, came out and said that transgender athletes are going to be able to surf. Uh, Surfing champ Bethany Hamilton uh, not in favor of this one. My hope is that if I ever have a daughter who is competing in surfing or any sport, and also for all the aspiring young generation of women, to have a bright and promising opportunity in her ambition to be the best of the best woman in her sport. And she refuses. She's not going to serve in that championship. 
Uh, but she was suggesting that there be a third category. You have the men's category, the women's, and then you have a transgender category. How do you feel about that when it pertains to swimming? You know, honestly, I do think in sports like surfing or like swimming or like track and field where you're, of course, on a team, but you're competing kind of individually. Mm -hmm. I think a third category, an open type category, is an awesome way to ensure everyone's opportunities um, to play sports because I think that's important and no one should be limited from that. It gives everyone the chance for athletic success, and it, of course, keeps the playing field even. So people who are in opposition of this bill or of this um, proposal, I just don't understand as to why, because it it makes perfect sense. Well, there's two there's there's two reasons why. One is you're there's not going to be much competition because how many men are really competing as uh, women athletes? That's number one. But number two, the the larger political point, uh, which I'm sure you appreciate now, is wait a second. You're not recognizing me as I say I am, and so you're not validating me. And if I'm not validated, then I'm not participating. It it may take it may take something more like a Bethany Hamilton, where premier female athletes say I'm not participating. I mean, that's it's she's their moneymaker. It's 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 a it's a difficult decision because you don't want to lose your scholarship, you don't want to lose your income. In the case of Bethany Hamilton, and but um, yeah, I, I, it's it's a it's a conundrum. I, w- I wonder, like when you were, because um, I mean, you just graduated from Kentucky. What was the what was the the, the honest conversations, you know, away from prying cameras uh, between uh, between the the women on your team, between parents and 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 athletes? I mean, we heard uh, you know a lot of the the pen parents were not happy about Leah Thomas, but the, uh, the parents of daughters, you know, their, their daughters on that team. And, but they were afraid to say anything they, you know, they, they would send these anonymous open letters exemplifying their fear. So I wonder what the, what the real conversation was between all, you know, all you folks that were stakeholders. From the girls who were on the pool deck at that meet and from female athletes I've talked to outside of just swimming um, up until this point, I mean, it's got to be around 95 to 98% of female athletes agree with my stance, with our stance, because they have put so much work in, so much time. And the facts are right in front of us that Thomas, the year before becoming the fastest female in the country, was ranked 462nd at best in the men's category. It just feels like we're being mocked. It feels like everything we've dedicated our lives to, because majority of these girls have been swimming, been playing since, you know, they're four or five years old. It just feels like it's kind of, I don't want to say for nothing because we've accomplished amazing things, but it just feels like there's someone who can do it better who doesn't have to try as hard. And so each day at our NCAA championships last year, the grumbles got worse and worse. I think people that first day, they were initially a little timid walking on eggshells. But then when we watched Thomas win a national title, there was grumbles. And then the next day, people were angry. And it was obvious. Everyone was extremely uncomfortable in the locker room. Um, No girl wanted to be displaced by a man. Yeah. Well, Riley Gaines, 12-time NCAA All-American swimmer, 2022 graduate, University of Kentucky, the spokeswoman for the Independent Women's Forum. Riley, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you hear from Charlie Baker, and uh, we'll continue to uh, watch your leadership on this issue. Well, thank you guys so much. I truly appreciate it. And thank you for joining us, and she joined us on our 
turnkey.proanswerline. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.